This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Oh, should we start this show? Yeah, I'm down. Just buying a car in Carvana first. Ooh, for real? Yeah, it's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. Ooh, that's helpful. And now just customizing my down and monthly payments. Ooh, that's a very fair deal. Yep. Boom. Just bought a car. And you get to take me to the Carvana vending machine in a couple days to pick it up. Ooh. I'm kind of busy. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Uh, we want to start with a shout out to our super producer slash Legal Beagle, or check this out, Noel, Legal Eagle, Max Williams. <laughs> silly Goose, a silly gander of the Michigan variety. Mm-hmm. And what's good for the goose is, of course, good for the Max. So we, uh, so you're Noel, I'm Ben, and mm-hmm. this is part two of an exploration of the sometimes ridiculous history of intellectual property. In part one, Noel, uh, I had made the offhand reference to legal beagle, and I found the etymology. Uh, it's kind of uncertain, but it seems like sometime in the 1940s, uh, an attorney wrote a book called The Little Lawyer and Legal Advisor, where he used the term legal eagle, and it transformed over time to legal beagle. Rhyming, am I right? Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. I wonder if someone's got a patent on that. Now, previously, we gave everybody a lot of background on the ancient history of IP and how it, uh, you pointed out something that I really appreciated, a lot of the modern legal definitions of intellectual property started in Italy, but then Italy picked up uh, the improvements that the United States made. And that's where we get our modern day definition of intellectual property. I mean, first, 
let's talk about what the what benefits would it have like if you came out with um if you came out with a an album i came out with a novel or let's say max invents a new uh, a new device used in curling see i'm relevant to all our interest here uh then what benefits would we have from ip laws Exactly. Uh, quite a few. And we've already sort of gotten into this a good bit. But, you know, it, once it gets a little more kind of ensconced in the law, uh, we really do see these protections start to become um, really clear. Uh, the idea of market value, um, intellectual property rights allow creators to generate businesses, you know, based on their original ideas and the licensing of those ideas, uh, the sale of products that are based in unique ideas, uh, and also the kind of proliferation and commercialization of those products, uh, goods and services that they are able to benefit from because of those protections. A hundred percent, you know, and this, uh, the big thing here is the protection. So you can prohibit other people from financially benefiting off of your ideas if they violate IP laws. So you can take people to court if they're making money off your ideas in a way that violates these laws. You can file a court case. Like if you are, Max, the inventor of the new um, new curling device and someone else starts just making those without compensating you, then you can sue them. And if they are found guilty, the court will give you a financial reward or you might have to uh, get a certain percentage of whatever those folks are profiting with, you know. That's right. And it also, um, we talked about, you know, the ability to market uh, and sell these services or goods. Um, it also, through that control of these ideas, allows you the power to help raise financing or raise funding, you know, for your business or idea because you hold an exclusive right, you know, to uh, those ideas. Uh, and with that in mind as well, it also gives you the ability to benefit from exports because if a country can't just make their own version of a thing because that intellectual property is already tied to another business, then the only option there is to import that good rather than create something um, regionally because they, you know, they would be infringing on that copyright protection. And here's the kicker. This stuff, as I said in part one, is imperfect. And these laws, while well-intentioned, kind of inherently create their own issues just by existing. A general term is only useful if it subsumes related concepts. So let's start with the idea, they stole my intellectual property. That concept by itself, without supporting evidence, is kind of uninformative. The general term, intellectual property, is such an umbrella term. It obscures more than it illuminates. If you allege copyright infringement, you have to identify exactly what it is that is being infringed upon and exactly how it's being infringed, right? So take patent law. If someone says, this person stole my invention in some way or some part of my invention, then you have to say, okay, does this quote unquote new invention straight up copy the design of the older one? And when you look at trademarks, 
you have to say like, okay, are these golden arches purposefully close to the McDonald's golden arches? Are they meant to trick people into thinking they're eating at McDonald's somehow? Well, and that also, you know, sort of begs the question, like, is it reasonable to think that a consumer would be tricked in that way? Is that even possible with like the ubiquity of what McDonald's is and and how, you know, just all encompassing it is like, I, I, I don't think it's a reasonable assumption that someone could be tricked into thinking they're eating at McDonald's when in fact it was something else, you know, and once you get into like parody uh, and the idea of like fair use and, and all of that stuff, which we'll get into, it really starts to get confusing. And we're taking a lot of this stuff in this section here from a really great essay by a professor of philosophy at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York named Samir Chopra, who has a fabulous essay literally titled End Intellectual Property uh, with the subtitle Copyrights, Patents, and Trademarks are all important, but the term intellectual property is nonsensical and pernicious. Um, and a dear friend of mine and uh, and the show, Peyton Fisher, um, buddy um, who we all have, uh, have hung out with together, um, he's a lawyer, uh, in New York, in Brooklyn himself, and he believes this wholeheartedly. We've had conversations multiple times about the just convoluted nature of intellectual property law and a lot of these kind of patent troll situations where someone is just basically bilking the system, you know, by... Uh, exploiting this idea of intellectual property um, or even some of these lawsuits around like a tune um, that are once you kind of look at everything, look at all the evidence, seemingly a bit opportunistic. I think a lot about software law when when this comes into play, like patenting things such as the click of a mouse, right? Or the idea of a window in general, which should be familiar to any fan of the software giant Microsoft. So I uh, also want to shout out, again, the excellent work by Bruce Bugby in 1967, The Genesis of American Patent and Copyright Law. For an example of what I'm talking about, with impersonation of well-known brands, uh, you can travel to Iran if you can get the visa, and you can see that due to a lot of sanctions, uh, Iranian businesses have been copying uh, or creating fake fast food franchises for many, many years. You probably aren't going to find a McDonald's or a Pizza Hut in Tehran, but you might find a Pizza Hat or a Mashed Donald's. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. There's a great uh, NPR article about this uh, called Mash Donald's Iranians Copy American Fast Food Brands. It's, it's a great read. And that's interesting, too, Ben, based on what we were just talking about earlier, where it's like in America, where there's a McDonald's, you know, every thousand feet, it would seem, um, you're going to be much less likely to be able to make the argument that someone would be fooled by McDonald's, thinking that they were actually in a McDonald's. Um, but in a country where McDonald's is not nearly as ubiquitous, you could make the opposite argument that, yeah, definitely you could, uh, if, if the branding was close enough, um, that there was an attempt to trick people. But then because of the other countries um, and, and, and the way the laws vary, it might be a little harder to enforce. What do you think, Ben? Has McDonald's gone after McDonald's or Pizza Hut gone after Pizza Hat? No, you know, it's interesting. They really haven't because it's tough to, given all the other geopolitical issues, it's tough for Iran and Western governments to get on the same page as a for about anything, you know what I mean? So how would you realistically even start that conversation? You know what I mean? Uh, it is lower on the list of priorities. And then this this goes into, again, the, the generality, the vagueness of the term. Good legislation, good jurisprudence is all about concrete definitions and intellectual property has a hard time with that. Because, you know, if you're debating copyright law, you have to wonder how does copying of academic papers work? Patent law doesn't really apply to that. Uh, if you're talking about patent law, you have to wonder whether pharmaceutical companies should have to issue licenses to poor countries for life-saving drugs. Copyright law doesn't really matter there. And I would also say that I have some personal feelings about, um, about the way pharmaceutical companies behave internationally. I don't think people should die because they don't have money. But that's, you know, that's a philosophical thing. 
And isn't there a similar thing to like the idea of a, of a trademark expiring or something entering the public domain as it pertains to generic drugs? Like uh, after a certain point, isn't something able to become generic and then, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of up for grabs and different companies can manufacture it? Uh, I, the big thing about drugs is it's, it's a patent. So it has very strict protections, but only for a set amount of time. Right. Once that time has passed, it's become like, you know, in theory, just like well known enough that everyone can now have the actual, like basically the script to how this thing was made. Because, right. Yeah. And, and, and that's the generic, right? That's what, that's when generics come out. That's like, you know, like, you know, you get the generic, like, you know, Allegra's and stuff like that, because and it's literally the same ingredients as the original Ooh. version of the drug, because we have that script. So, so that means that at that point, the original manufacturer has to release that information. They have to, like, make the recipe available. Yeah, I'm like 99 percent certain because you have to give the recipe to, in the patent. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So, OK, got it. And it gets it, it becomes even more complicated when you look at um, countries like India. So right now, India is the largest democracy on the planet and in very much in need of some life saving medications. And they did something that really ticked off a lot of Western countries where they said, look, we know how to make this. We're not going to have people die just because they're poor. So we're going to make our generic versions. You guys deal with it. And for some folks, that makes the government of India villainous. And for other folks, it makes them heroes, especially the people who had their lives saved as a result of that decision. So there, there's a lot involved here. And the rubber does hit the road. What we're saying is this is Although it might sound dry at times, this is very much important mission critical stuff for human society at large. We also have the idea of fair use, which we deal with so often here in podcast land. It's the reason that we decided with reluctance uh, to, <laughs> to put in our own law and order spin on the Casey on the Case sound cue. Because we didn't want Dick Wolf mad at us. And we, you have to be very, very careful with what qualifies as fair use. Well, and of course, as we've all often run against and as our policy kind of as a company has become, fair use isn't an ironclad protection. You can't just say, ah, fair use. No. Boom. Leave me yeah. alone. Right. No, it's just a defense that you have to then use in court. Uh, and you still have to go to court and defend your position. And that's very, very expensive, especially for a big company. And if you're a big company, um, that makes you a target for these types of lawsuits. And so sometimes it's just better to err on the side of safety than it is to, to depend on some sort of fair use argument. Whereas like uh, a DJ or uh, an under the radar kind of indie artist might be more likely to to give it a role. Yeah, fair use very much has like the self defense argument where if you believe you go you just go in a court and say it was self defense and they're like oh that's okay that's fine uh, you're, you're in a lot of trouble like you really have to make a good case for it. It's not to say you know get a jail free card. Exactly, it's not like tagging base. You have to explain why you should be able to tag base. And and like you said, Noel, um, you can enter into a war of attrition legally, right? Especially if the other side wants to make it super inconvenient, then you go into appeals that can last for years and years and years. And you can just hemorrhage money and time. The other thing is the idea of 
non-obviousness. This can come up in patent law, but it can't. It doesn't really come up in copyright law. So what what we're saying essentially, and you don't have to be a lawyer for this one. What we're saying is that intellectual property is a broad term that applies to all sorts of things that are, in truth, their own distinct areas of legal concern. So copyright law is not the same as patent law. Trademarks are not the same as uh, other IP violations, right? So because of this, like, like we're citing in this wonderful essay, just using intellectual property as a concept all the time, indiscriminately, it leads to absolutely absurd situations. Anything associated with a creator is grouped under this huge umbrella, and that doesn't make sense. Yeah, what does make sense, though, is is that it gets so murky because we know what property is for the most part. You know, it, it's it's tangible. It's an asset. It's like a thing that you can catalog and, and, and you know, tag and, and put in a ledger of some kind, like a car or a house, you know, or a piece of equipment or something like that. That's, that's property. And we are guaranteed to our property. But an idea is a little more slippery than that because what led to the idea? Where, what, what's the... What what are, the, what are the guts, you know, the sort of foundations of the idea? And where do those aspects come from and who owns those? So it's a lot harder to pin down an idea than it is like, you know, a, a Volvo. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. And when we see this, we also see enormous opportunity for something we alluded to in part one, the idea of so-called patent trolls, the, the concept that there are people who know how to weaponize this incredibly Byzantine imperfect system, and they're not there because they want their patent to help the world. They're not there to really protect their rights in good faith. They are there to get money from other people. And there, and there are thousands of ways to do this. And in doing that, what we see is a lot of the really important stuff about IP gets lost in this semantic mire, this war of words, the notion of borrowing, reusing, reworking, remixing stuff. All You need all of this for culture and art and science to grow. Perhaps Pablo Picasso was right when he said, uh, what is a good artist copy? Great artist steal? Mm -hmm. You know what, dude? Even that phrase has been repurposed and and associated with so many different people who maybe said that. So it's just it's like parallel thinking is also an issue, right? Two different parties, thousands of miles away, might legitimately come up with the same idea at the same time. Um, and then you have all kinds of, you know, problems that can arise from that. I do want to just, there's a really great definition of patent trolls uh, from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I'm just going to read it right off of I their the article on uh, patent trolls. Uh, they describe patent trolls as uh, someone who uses patents as legal weapons instead of actually creating any new products or coming up with new ideas. Instead, trolls are in the business of litigation or even just threatening litigation. They often buy up patents cheaply from companies down on their luck who are looking to monetize what resources they have left, such as patents. Unfortunately, the patent office has a habit of issuing patents for ideas that are neither new nor revolutionary. And these patents can be very broad, covering everyday or common sense types of uh, computing. This is specifically referring to, to your point, Ben, software. Um, things that should have never been patented in the first place. And this does not just have to... Uh, 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 
attached to the software. This this is the case for any type of patent. And, you know, because the patent office is, uh, is probably overwhelmed. And so they maybe some things slide through the cracks. And so these patent trolls are taking advantage of this system rather than using it as a, a means of innovation. And if anything, to your point, Ben, they're slowing it down um, and, and possibly doing serious damage. There was a patent troll that we ran up against very early on in our podcast careers because How Stuff Works was listed as a, a defendant in a patent troll case uh, involving the concept of podcasts. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because the idea of a podcast was that it was serialized content placed on a, a feed, you know, an RSS feed, which stands for really simple syndication. So a feed, an RSS feed was originally used for things like, I believe, news groups, or maybe it was just like reading lists and things like that. And then somebody figured out how to repurpose it and use it for, you know, compressed audio in a serialized form. And therein lied the advent of, of podcasting as we know it. But this patent troll turned targeted folks like Jimmy Kimmel and uh, How Stuff Works and, and some other kind of early big names. I think Mark Maron, um, but ultimately did not win because that would have been really bad. Yeah, podcasts would not have been a thing or they would have changed. Uh, they would have had to change by necessity. So because of this, because of this indiscriminate use of the concept of intellectual property, there have been numerous legal disasters. Copyrights have grown Without limit, almost uh, the you know again they were supposed to be temporarily limited, but that hasn't been the case. Congress drastically increased copyright terms in 1976, then again in 1998. Uh, I, I mentioned this in part one, but a big, big piece of this was the Disney Corporation. They were lobbying for decades to retain exclusivity over Mickey Mouse and not to let the poor guy get into the public domain, not to let old Steamboat become uh, become a man of the people or a mouse of the people, as it were. Right. <laughs> and uh, so in other cases, you see that people who are using intellectual property also suggest that protections be passed on to an heir of some sort. Like the notion of inheritance that comes from real estate would also apply to copyright law. So like, let's say your great grandfather is T.S. Eliot or something like that. Then does that mean that you have the copyright over um, the wasteland? you know, or Wastelands. Does that mean you own Little Giddings, even though he didn't write it uh, and played no role in the creation? It's, right. it's a weird question. It is, and it's interesting, too, because when you deal with, say, music... I believe it's a different ballgame because you have publishing rights versus the rights of the recording itself. So like to every like album or piece of music that's released, there are two sides of the copyright. There's the publishing side, which literally refer has to be registered as notes on a page and lyrics on a page. And that's one copyright. The and other the is masters. the actual recording, the masters, exactly. And those are passed down uh, to generations you know you'll they'll they'll exist in the estate of of a family and usually you'll see it's members of the estate that are suing kind of down the line but I, I you know i mean it's 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 a long time though for something to enter the public domain so for the fact the fact that we see uh mickey mouse you know finally running up against that's because he's almost he's over 100 years old at this point right i mean right i believe i believe it was 
Yeah. 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 It's a hundred years old. Um, But like we certainly there are classical music pieces where the publishing rights are in the public domain, but not the recording by the London Philharmonic. Right. So that's different. You know, those are there's two different sides of that. Um, And we're going to have a good time in a minute getting into some specific and and pretty silly examples of some, you know, actual court cases surrounding intellectual property. But um, it's it's a murky topic because there are so many different flavors of it. So we just, you know, hopefully we're not getting too bogged down, but I think uh, we've done a decent job of kind of trying to, you know, demonstrate the different ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what we're saying is that this is leading to a huge, messy bowl of spaghetti. Things are going to get even weirder in the U.S. and abroad next year because 2024 is when Mickey Mouse enters public domain at present. You're already seeing stuff like that with uh, the Winnie the Pooh horror movie. I think Winnie the oh, Pooh yeah, 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 yeah. just got released. And I think you can't, there's certain things you can't do though. Like it's not like you just can use the character in whatever way you see fit exactly. It's the red shirt. You can't exactly. use the red shirt on Winnie the Pooh. That's because so that's weird. a more recent iteration, right? Or what? Well, I, I think that is what made it. Disney's property because Winnie the Pooh obviously predated Disney. That's sure. right. So we're yeah. talking about the book Winnie the Pooh entering the public domain, not necessarily the Disney version. But with uh, Mickey Mouse, we are talking about a character that was originally created by Disney. So what happens if you, if over time a character's design changes, then does that restart the clock? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Probably that that is probably in the minutia of the argument, and probably the corporations would love discussing that minutia as long as you continue the clock further and further, yeah, and further it's out. Running the clock, and it depends on uh, how good your lawyer is, and frankly, what their relationship with the judge is. I'm just going to say the quiet part out loud. I mean, let's you know what? Let's get into. We've done our due diligence on the background and some of the legal and philosophical concerns. Let's get into the fun stuff. Let's talk about Louis Vuitton and a hot diggity dog. (laughs) Exactly. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. 
And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Louis Vuitton, of course, famous, uh, storied fashion house, you know, fashion brand, um, known for its haute couture, haute diggity dog, uh, probably not as uh, much of a household name, but um, there was, in fact, a lawsuit, Louis Vuitton versus haute diggity dog, uh, when in 2006, Louis Vuitton sued this little, little, little doggy toy company, haute diggity dog, for trademark uh, trade dress and copyright infringement when haute diggity dog created these little plush dog toys uh, under the name Chewy Vuitton. And you've probably seen the iconic Louis Vuitton handbags that are like kind of brown leather with the LV sort of like um, stamped in like a pattern on them. Uh, And that is what Chewy Vuitton used, you know, for their dog toys. Um, So it, it really, you know, they're obviously not handbags and I don't think anyone would ever confuse them for that. They're little squishy toys that kind of look like handbags and say Chewy Vuitton and have the little with one T, not two. It is with one T. Sorry, you're right, Ben. Good point. No, it's with two. Chewy Vuitton is with one. Mm-mm. Look at it right now. I'm looking at it too. I've got it pulled up here. V-U-I-T-T-O-N. I'm seeing I'm seeing multiple. I'm looking at their actual website. Okay, I'm looking at the images. Let me go to their website and check. You're right. On yeah, the on the actual things, it's one T, but the but the URL is two T's. See? And the actual logo Ooh. of the top is two cheese. <laughs> I wonder why they did that. I think we can tell. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we keep all this in because this is exactly the kind of stuff we're talking about. So, um, Chewy Vuitton argued that they were essentially doing a parody. You know, um, it's like, oh, it's silly. It's, it's this is like fashion, high fashion stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's make it for for doggies. And the courts agreed. Uh, Louis Vuitton argued that the toys were going to cause brand confusion, mm-hmm. but then. Louis Vuitton doesn't make dog toys. Right. So where's the brand confusion? No one is going to mistake a a little, you know, cuddly, squeaky dog bag for, you know, an overpriced handbag. Mm -hmm. And then the court makes the decision that Chewy Vuitton is a, quote, joking and amusing parody and nothing more. So parody again, qualifies for its own set of considerations, which we we mentioned briefly, but uh, just so you know, this is part of the reason why Weird Al does a lot of, uh, does so much great work, you know? And, and the Weird Al situation I love because, interestingly enough, 
a lot of other musicians consider it a great honor and a rite of passage for Weird Al to parody them. Who's I the believe... one guy who didn't like it? There was one guy who really didn't like it. Uh, uh, there Gigs was Prince. I don't think oh. he ever did it. He didn't. He never do a, did a Prince. I don't think he, he never got the permission to do a Prince one because well, he would ask people thing. in advance. He, he he usually does. I think he almost always does, whether as a courtesy or what. But, but. Coolio didn't like it. You're right. Coolio Coolio later apologized to Weird Al because he would always beforehand reach out and I think he got it from the record label and he thought he had gotten it directly from Coolio and Coolio was very mad saying hey you're using my work man and so like it was one of these situations where he was like legally right but I believe he was like really like he felt bad about it he's like hey man I I didn't I don't want to ever do that to people well also like you could argue that Coolio was thinking it was disrespecting what he considered to be kind of like a serious song about a real problem in terms of like young people getting tied up in gang violence Mm -hmm. and all of that and to make it sort of like a a silly goof he might have felt was in poor taste and you know you could argue that it is in poor taste but it does come with some protections Ben it's so funny I just have to add um, Chewy Vuitton is is a brand in and of itself so Hot Diggity Dog had their line of Chewy Vuitton toys but if you look online there actually is a website that's just Chewy Vuitton and that's spelled with two T's whereas the one in uh, the Hot Diggity Dog line is spelled with one T mm-hmm. so now we're like really getting into parodies of parodies you know I mean it gets deep and weird and this is far from the only example. Let's look at David Slater versus Pita on behalf of none other than Naruto the Monkey. So David Slater is a British nature photographer, and he was hanging out with a group of monkeys in Indonesia, celebs crested macaques. And he had no idea that his photography would make a, a, a huge uh, legal quagmire. So while he's hanging out with these monkeys, uh, some of them picked up his camera and monkeys are very intelligent. Uh, they took a lot of cool selfies. You could, you could see these, they were viral for a while and surprise, surprise. When our pal Dave Slater gets home, he sees these photos have been published in all sorts of newspapers, not just like kind of tabloidy stuff like the daily mail, but the guardian and the telegraph as well. And, uh, someone, took these photographs, an editor at Wikimedia Commons, and uploaded them to the Wikimedia website. Slater found this and he said, hey, can you take these off your website? Because this is my work. And Wikimedia said, hey, sorry, David, that might have been your camera, but you didn't take those photos. The monkeys did. And we'll go to court over it if you want. And in fact, there's still a note attached to that license, um, this Wikimedia Commons thing, which is a a very uh, useful tool for, let's say, documentary filmmakers or podcasters, you know, where if it's got a Wikimedia Commons license attached to it, that is a damn good sign that they've done their homework and that it is, in fact, something that is public domain. But the note reads, this file is in the public domain because as the work of a non-human animal, it has no human author in whom copyright is vested. Mm-hmm. So unless the monkeys go to court, what are you going to say? And like I said at the beginning of this one, you heard the name PETA, Ridiculous Historians. How did PETA get in there? Well, PETA takes Slater to court because of something called the Next Friend Principle of Law. The Next Friend Principle of Law allows you to sue in the name of another person. In this case, 
the uh, organization PETA is suing on behalf of one of those monkeys whose name is Naruto. And so in 2018, a judge at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has probably one of the weirdest cases in their entire career, and they rule against the selfie-taking monkey. They throw out the copyright lawsuit, and along the way, they heavily criticize PETA, and they say, don't make Naruto an unwitting pawn in your, quote, ideological goals. We talked about this case in our Animals in Court episode around the concept of animal personhood. And PETA, whatever you think of them um, as an organization, you can't really deny the fact that they do often uh, do kind of, um, I guess, let's call them symbolic lawsuits that yeah. maybe are wasting a lot of folks' time, but ultimately are an excuse for them to create a press release, but nothing really comes of them. Or, or a legal precedent. That's so, true. Like Correct. sue for a dollar so that you can get something, some jurisprudence on the books. We're going to end on two from the world of pop culture. Let's go to Mattel Incorporated versus MGA Entertainment Incorporated. So these are two companies suing each other, and they're suing because of beef between Barbie and the Bratz with a Z. Yeah, that's right. And this really goes into that whole concept of like something being so derivative that it it, it could be considered a, a, a an infringement, you know, but that's for the courts to decide, isn't it? Um, and no one's going to make that decision unless a lawsuit is filed. So Barbie, at this point, obviously Barbie's having a real moment right now, real glow up. Uh, but at this point, uh, in 2001, Barbie as a brand is already 42 years young when the Bratz dolls with a Z, because they're edgy, you know, hit the scene. Uh, I believe the first run of Bratz dolls included Chloe, Jade, Sasha, and Yasmin. Um, and these are like, they're kind of macabre, like giant-headed, you know, puffy-lipped, cartoony sort of, you know, scene girls. Kind they're of, like bad know. powder puff girls. Really? Yeah, exactly. In terms of the proportions of head to body. Um, but they did really well. Um, very quickly, I think in the span of just five years, they took about 40% of the market share away from Barbie in terms of, I guess, dolls portraying fashion-y young women. Right, right. Because it's a specific demographic that these toys are for. And so Mattel does what any company would reasonably do there. They try to make a new iteration of Barbie dolls that will bring back some of that market share. And this line of Barbies is called My Scene Barbies. They they echo the big-headed, slim-bodied uh, build of the Bratz dolls, and MGA Entertainment doesn't cotton to this. So in April 2005, they sue Mattel and they say, you are infringing upon our Bratz thing. And then Mattel comes back in court because both of these are companies, so they can afford to bleed a little money. Uh, they say, well, Bratz has a designer named Carter Bryant. And Carter Bryant made the Bratz doll design while we at Mattel were paying Carter. And this is true. Carter worked for Mattel from 1995 in September to April 1998, and then worked for him again in 1999 to October 2000. And the contract that Carter Bryant signed stipulated that his designs during this time would all be property of Mattel. And you can see this in a lot of other industries. Like, uh, please read your employment contracts carefully because you might sign something that says any software you create while you're employed 
or anything you make on a work computer becomes the IP of your employer. So be very careful with that. That becomes a big plot point in the HBO series Silicon Valley, um, where like there's an algorithm that one of the main characters is working on, like a compression algorithm. And at some point, it becomes a subject in court proceedings as to whether um, he did that on a computer owned by the sort of Google, you know, stand in that's in the show. Huli is what it's called. Uh, and that's a big deal. Like if you do anything like that on a work computer, technically it is the product of the company. Like even maybe if it's not within the scope of your work. You got to wonder that. Like, what if you're like, you know, I, I have my own computer that I that I use in my home setup in my home studio that I record music on. Um, but if I was using a work computer, all of the stuff that I did with that computer, if I one day sold a song for a million dollars or whatever, technically the company could claim that I did it on a work computer and therefore they would be party to that, uh, those, those, those earnings, right? I think. Even if it's not under the scope of my employment. It can happen Uh, that way. Again, we cannot emphasize this enough. You've got to read those contracts carefully because uh, another example would be um, whether or not it matters that you were working on company time, which takes precedent, using company equipment or using company time. For example, I have... um, I've had to negotiate some pretty specific things with uh, non-competes in regards to being a writer independent of the podcast and stuff. And that, that is like, we're very fortunate in that the, our colleagues and, and the folks we work with are all for some reason, big fans of us. So when we have outside projects or work, 99 times out of 100, they're like, you guys are awesome. Go do the thing. That's great. Yeah. And that doesn't apply to everyone. We're quite fortunate in that regard. For sure. We also do know that typically non-compete clauses are a little difficult to enforce. You know, sure. they're not always ironclad. Uh, but in this case, it did not go in favor of uh, of Carter Bryant and the Bratz brand. In July 2008, uh, the jury took the side of Mattel and uh, MGA, the Bratz, I guess, parent company, had to pay Mattel a whopping $100 million. And also, oh, insult to injury, remove Bratz dolls from the shelves. But something's changed because there's been Bratz movies and stuff, and I think Bratz are back in a big way. One year. They, th- they had to take them off a the shelf for one year. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And then MGA ultimately prevailed, and they they said, we're proving that Mattel has stolen our trade secrets. Uh, so, so these cases are almost never fully done. Thanks to appeals processes, these can go on for. So long. Uh, listen, uh, one more. This this is one for the 80s babies in the crowd today. You may recall in the mid-1980s, the Reagan administration started something called the Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI, and immediately everyone in the United States called it the Star Wars program. Most people loved this. Uh, one guy who didn't love this was George Lucas, uh, who you may be familiar with. 
Yeah, uh, George Lucas. Uh, it's 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 like history. It rhymes. Yeah, that guy. Um, he and his production company, uh, Lucasfilm, were annoyed at Uncle Sam or Uncle uh, Uncle Ronnie, um, and it didn't want this association with uh, its brand, with his brand. And by this association, I'm referring to one tied up in war efforts and and uh, missile launching missiles into space and all of that. You know. You want a kind of a clean slate. And in Star Wars, there's very little uh, threat of global annihilation. You know, there's kind of dogfights in space. I mean, there is the Death Star and all of that stuff. But, you know, there really isn't much of like an apocalypse vibe in, in, in Star Wars. There's sort of a, I don't know, a nice kind of diplomatic wave of things working themselves out. Oh, by the way, the blockade, that was uh, Phantom Menace, not Clone War. Oh, brought or, it back. Or, or it clone. starts with the, the with the weird w- w- aliens, and they're talking about it's a blockade. But it comes into play in in the second one. And that's I watched really the clip of debating. it to really date this recording. I was editing the uh, the Aleutian Islands episode, and uh, I watched a clip, and it's it's very weird. And it's like, wow, I didn't realize the Phantom Menace was this weird. It all just feels weird. It has all the juries getting blown up on R2-D2 survives. It's where they introduced R2-D2. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really ham-fisted in there. All that, that whole movie was, it's just a joyless cash grab. Now, this is interesting. I'm glad we're ending on this one because it's a larger question for us and all the ridiculous historians in the crowd. In 1985, when this lawsuit comes to bear, Lucas doesn't sue the U.S. government, right? Because officially, the U.S. government just has a few politicians who start using the phrase Star Wars program. But he can sue two public interest groups, one called High Frontier and one called the Committee for Strong, Peaceful America. They run these TV messages, these like PSAs, and they refer to this program as Star Wars. And Lucasfilm has a trademark for Star Wars, the movies, the brilliant film franchise that goes into all sorts of things, toys, books, merch, you name it. The federal district court said, sorry, George, we're ruling in favor of the interest group. They are totally fine to call their program whatever they want, even Star Wars, so long as they don't attach it to a product or service for sale. And the court decision even said, Look, forever, creators of fictional worlds have seen their vocabulary for fantasy appropriated to describe reality. So that's stuff like, um, you know, like George Orwell. People reference Mm -hmm. 1984 and double think all the time. I don't know. What do you guys think about that decision? I think it's right on the money because, first of all, it wasn't even officially the name of the program. True. It was sort of shorthand that was just being thrown around. Uh, and that's what happens when you have such a brand that's so ubiquitous as as Star Wars. People are going to start using terms from it, you know, in normal kind of parlance, whether it be in conversation or in uh, to describe, you know, things that are bigger than just like uh, civilian kind of activities. Right. It's just it's, it's it makes sense. But you can't put that genie back in the bottle. That's part of having something that sort of uh, uh, really invades the public consciousness. It's going to get appropriated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. And these conversations continue in the modern day. There are so many other strange examples we can give you of intellectual property beefs. But for now, I think we can say safely 
that this stuff often gets very, very ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> no question about it, man. Uh, yeah, this is cool. It's something that we often find ourselves kind of in the midst of uh, in podcasting and have kind of seen some of these things sort of evolve, you know, uh, in our lifetimes. And they're going to continue to do so because it is still, uh, you know, based on the history of it, uh, not so clear. You know, ideas are like, you know, made of spiders, webs and magic, as uh, as Noel Fielding might say on the Mighty Boosh. Uh, it's really hard to pin down. Mm-hmm. And one thing we can say is that we are continually grateful for all of all of you folks playing along at home, ridiculous historians, thanks to you. Uh, we're also grateful for the help of everybody in the Ridiculous crew. Let's start with a big thanks for super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Jonathan Strickland, uh, ever may he, you know, live under our uh, symbolic podcast bridge. Uh, and we'll always pay that toll because at the end of the day, you know, he's our troll. Um, Chris Rossiotis here in spirit. Yeah, Eve's Jeffcoat. Uh, let's also give a shout out to Gabe Luzier. Let's give a shout out to our research associate for this episode, Dr. Z. And Knowles, shout out to you, sir. <laughs> you as well, my friend. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at AvalonWaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated.